Welcome to Get Real, Talking Mental Health and Disability. I'm Robin Hayden. We're continuing our conversations about mental health and ways we can take care of ourselves and each other. And it's been quite a year. The COVID-19 pandemic has been draining for people in so many ways. And as a consequence of the sudden change to how we have had to live our lives, things like social distancing and uncertainty and lockdowns and isolation, and mental health has been at the forefront of a national conversation like never before. This is our final episode for 2021, and we thought it would be timely to talk about self-care. What is self-care? How do we practice self-care and why is it important for our mental health? Our first guest today is Donna Markham. Donna's a qualified occupational therapist, an adjunct associate professor at Monash University and also a member of our IRMA 365 board and chair of our practice governance quality and safety committee. Donna is Victoria's former Chief Allied Health Officer, and she's done extensive work and provided leadership throughout the COVID-19 pandemic around conversations within organisations about the importance of self-care and protecting and supporting the well-being of the workforce. Recently, Donna started her own business, Disequilibrium, coaching and supporting professional women in the workplace. Welcome, Donna. It's great to have you join us. Thanks, Robin. It's great to be here. Awesome. And today we're also joined by Lynn Suquette. Lynn is one of UMA 365's practice leaders for psychosocial support services. She has a diploma in professional counselling and she's worked across various roles in disability and mental health, all involving assisting vulnerable people who have physical and or mental disabilities, often from trauma. Lynn is passionate about empowering people to gain the confidence and connections to live their life the best way they can and as independently as they can. Welcome, Lynn. Great to have you part of this conversation today. Hi, Robin. Thank you. And hello, everyone that's listening. It's great to be here. And welcome back. This is not your first time chatting chatting to us. So really glad to have you um, here today because this is a really important topic and, and I'm really looking forward to getting stuck into this. I think it's something that a lot of people need to think about, need to reflect on and, and, and to have permission to do that really as we come to the end of a really grinding and, and difficult year. But first of all, you know, before we get into that, I'd like to find out a little bit more about both of you and the work that you do. So Donna, if we can start with you, can you tell us about your work, especially in the past few years during the pandemic? What have you been doing? Thanks, Robin. Well, as you said, I've been the Chief Allied Health Officer for the Victorian Government for the last three and a bit years. Um, I finished up in that role about three months ago. And I mean, I could never have imagined that I'd be, you know, providing leadership through a pandemic when I first started the role, yet here we are in the middle of one. So probably 18 months ago, nearly two years ago now, I suppose everything got turned on its head when we started to hear about this virus that had come out of Wuhan and people were like, where's Wuhan? Now we all know where Wuhan is and we've been, um, you know, trying to respond to the impact since then. So my role was very much around providing clinical leadership to the allied health sector, which is made up of about 27 odd different professions. And I guess part of that was giving advice to government on how the restrictions might impact not only how allied health provides services, but what that might mean for the people that they're caring for as well. Because obviously with all of these restrictions, it's had a huge impact on people being able to access their you know, essential health care. So I provided a lot of advice around what that might mean from the patient's perspective or the client's perspective, as well as what that meant for allied health businesses. Mm. And so that's been a, you know, a roller coaster the whole way through, I suppose, in terms of navigating that space. 
And then the other really important thing and um, thing that I'm incredibly proud of doing, I suppose, was setting up the Healthcare Worker Wellbeing Centre for the Victorian Government as well. So, we, as you said, we recognise the impact that this pandemic has had and um, the Victorian Government, you know, decided that it was now no longer not an option to act in terms of healthcare worker wellbeing. And, I mean, this is... Wellbeing has been an issue for a long time now. Uh, It's not new to the pandemic, but I think the pandemic has just shone a spotlight on the topic to the extent that it's just not an option not to act anymore. So setting up a a wellbeing centre for healthcare workers that, that is applicable to anyone really. It's not just healthcare workers, it's people working in any industry that would benefit, but just shining that spotlight on that really important issue. So yeah, it was a it was a pretty full on eighteen months supporting working with government and supporting um, healthcare workers all around, really. Yeah, sounds like it. And you know, sometimes it takes a crisis to really shift resources into the places where they need to be, and we're starting to see that now in mental health, which is great. But you know, obviously, there's always overdue. a need for more, and 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 it is quite overdue, yeah. as you said. Um, Lynn, um, can you share with us? us a little bit about your work and and the areas that you're interested in and tell us what psychosocial support services are for people who might not know. Okay, for sure. So, um, well, as you know, I could probably talk for years about psychosocial support services, very passionate about um, them. So for people that uh, don't know, psychosocial support uh, services uh, for people that, uh, that their mental health that everyone's mental health um, impacts on their environment and day-to-day living and that um, their social life environment impacts on their mental health. So it, it corresponds, it goes around. And so as you can imagine, in this pandemic, that um, with psychosocial support services, we're here to build capacity for persons that are um, needing that support in the mental health area and going into an isolating world was not ideal uh, so not only did um, we feel the impact of not being able to go out and outreach which is where we did a lot of our work uh, our whole world turned upside down as well so to the mm-hmm. we went from, um, thinking well how are we going to provide this support uh, is, uh, is, is this the end of like social support services as we know it and it flipped around to providing support in a way of telehealth, um, to be honest, the people that we support through our program were an absolute inspiration in the way that um, they actually came around and asked if we were okay most of the time because a lot of people said, we've spent our lives in isolation, this is, this is the norm for us, what's it like for yourself? And um, some really great conversations came out of that and the resilience of people and what I love, I guess my passion is building capacity in people and that people aren't relying on services that, as we've seen in the changing world, being NDIS, you know, direct community support services, the Royal Commission has then come through, but life changes all the time. No one can rely in, on a particular service or way a service is run for mental health. So building people's capacity so that if these services end, they still know how to navigate their own lives and what they want and not being dependent on services is really important to me. I come from a youth background and saw what happened to young people that were, I guess, promised everything up until they're 18 and then suddenly it wasn't there anymore and what, you know, relying on services did to people. So uh, I've got to say from 
my area of passion and interest, like social services, uh, absolutely where I want to be and where my passion actually lies. Mm. Mm, so great, I think great people in the virtual room to have this conversation today, obviously a real area of interest for both of you. So today we're talking about self-care and what that means and, you know, I know I seem to be hearing that term now, you know, more than ever, whereas in the past it was something that could have been seen as, you know, indulgent or optional or, or just not that important really in the scheme of things and, you know, I think particularly women are conditioned um, to care for other people um, before they care for themselves. So I want to find out um, from both of you to the extent that you're willing to to share this about your lived experiences with self-care and why self-care is so important in the context of your mental health. Um, Lynn, might start with you here. Can you share about your experience of self-care and, and, and how it relates to your own mental health and well-being? Obviously, you do frontline work, you do important work um, in this space. How has the work that you do been an influence on understanding of how to take care of your yourself and, and your own needs? Okay, yeah, no, great question. Uh, I will say, and I'll admit this wholeheartedly here, I was probably the role model for how not to self-care, to be honest. I've been in an industry for a long time of, uh, if you're a carer or someone in the position of caring with people, you know, for me, you, you don't put yourself first. Um, you don't. And like you said, you know, women as being usually you know, often mothers and carers, you know, as well as not, you know, with work and personal life do that second and I think um, we're very good at doing that but anyone as a whole in this I will say this industry in the caring industry where the mental health disabilities do put themselves second so that has been during this pandemic in the last couple of years we really have started focusing on practicing on self-care and saying that yes you do take your sick or personal leave when you're unwell you're not being, um, you're not being lazy by doing that, but actually putting yourself first, you can't, um, as police is, you can't um, help people if you've got empty cuts. If you're, if you're drained, then you're not actually assisting anyone. You need to replenish that um, you know, spirit in your soul. So we um, have been pushing it, and I have been, like I said, a lot of do as I um Say not as I do, but I'm really flipping that round on on um, now and really practicing that stopping work when it is time to finish work. When you're feeling unwell, call out, call out for help. Take a breather. Don't do back to back meetings. Um, when someone is in crisis, there's a lot of persons, of course, the challenges that go on in mental with mental health or or just in this world at the moment, people. Um, in need of crisis but not to respond until you're feeling in that frame of mind to do so let people know you need five minutes because you are not helping anyone if you don't and it's that continued conversations and I guess for myself hearing me say it out loud um, on a personal level one of the things that um, you know took care of that for me was uh, suffering a, um, a stroke in my eye a few months ago so um, due to not looking after myself, I wasn't listening to my body, even though I was saying it. And um, to be honest, uh, this is a, you know it was a real wake up call. And again, as we're saying, if you don't take time 
kind of make make time for your wellness, you will be forced to make time for your illness. And I just repeat that to myself a lot now. And yeah, and that recovery is quite often what I put through to people saying if it can happen to me as a very um you know, generally a healthy person that can help happen to anyone, you need to take care of yourself. And, you know, and I guess in a, it's not, um, you know, the nicest thing to happen, but again, it was a wake-up call and sometimes that's what we need. And if that can help other people to recognise, to listen, then, you know, that's what I'll use it for. Then that's a positive. Yeah, thank you, Lynn. Thank you for, for sharing that too because I think there'll be people listening and certainly when I was hearing you talk about that experience, you know, we need to reflect on the extent to which we're demanding more of ourselves than, than ever before and, you know, to, to what extent do you continue to push and continue to push forward and what are the consequences of that later and, yeah, making time for your health before you are forced to make time for an illness or a recovery Um yeah, even just stopping and reflecting on that is an important step in self-care, isn't it? Donna, I think, you know, you have a young family and you've worked in senior positions, executive positions that are, are pretty demanding. Um, you know what it's like to have those competing, competing demands and kind of be juggling those balls in the air all the time. What's your experience of self-care been like, especially in recent times? And was there a point in your life where it really just became critical for you to take care of yourself? Thanks, Robin. Um, I think there's been a number of points in my life where it's become critical and I think that's helped me realise what I've needed to do in the last, you know, 18 months in particular. And I think just reflecting on um, some of the things that Lynn was just talking about then, I, you know, we shouldn't wait until it's too late. And I mean, another great analogy is thinking about fitting your own oxygen mask before you fit someone else's because you can't care for others unless you care for yourself. Um, I think for me, there's been a couple of um, pivotal points in my life. The first was probably when I was younger and my brother had mental health issues and I was really struggling with his um, health and also the dynamics in my family at the time. And we ended up um, having some family therapy as a family to help navigate that space. And I think that was probably the first introduction for me in terms of, oh, actually some permission really to think about my own needs and not just the needs of everybody around me. Mm. Um and then a couple of years after that, when my first marriage broke down very suddenly and um, sort of knocked me for six, I remember thinking, what the hell am I going to do? And I picked up the yellow pages because you didn't have Google or phones back then. And I found a counsellor who could see me as soon as possible. And I, that was a pivotal point in my life where, you know, I got myself on a mental health care plan and I've continued to have professional counselling ever since. And I think that was, you know, those two kind of um, my, my brother's mental illness and then my own relationship breakdown were two very pivotal points that I guess um, were my point of, well, I can't not act now. I need to look after myself because I'd sort of hit my rock bottom. Um, and I, you know, I guess when I talk to people, I always encourage people not to wait until you hit rock bottom if you can, because, you know, it's so this is something we should be doing as a proactive well-being strategy all of the time, not just because we're unwell. It's It's like you know, going to gym for your mind, really looking after your, your well-being. So I guess for me in recent times, um, as the pandemic hit and the pressure certainly turned up at work and at life, like we all returned home, we all worked in our offices, we all worked in the same space that we, you know, previously used to go to for rest and relaxation and restoration. So I re-engaged professional help. Um, I was fortunate enough to get some support through the workplace for professional coaching using the EAP um, services as well 
you know, I, I went back to the basics of sleep and food and rest and, um, you know, and exercise. So I sat down with my partner and I said, well, what are we, how did, how's our week look like? Where's the self-care in our week? And where's the couple care? And then where's the family care? And to me, it was in that order. The self-care first, couple care second, family care third, and then maybe somewhere fourth, we'll think about work because I can't do any of the other things unless I'm okay. So, you know, what's the week look like? When's my self-care and you know, my partner Daniel, when's his self-care and then when do we come together as a couple and what does that look like in lockdown? And sometimes that was takeaway in the car because you couldn't go to restaurants. But, you know, it's thinking about making those things um, a must-have, not a desirable or an optional activity in our week um, and planning for it. So mm. that's something that we certainly um, implemented. And there even came a point throughout uh, last year in particular where I just said to him, I'm barely keeping my own head above water. I can't continue to support you because I think often sometimes we end up being, as you said earlier, Robin, the support for others. And I said to him, I need you to go and get some, you need to look after your own self-care now. I'll do what I can, but, I, you know, I'm, I'm at a threshold here as well. So I really had to encourage him to, um, to go and just, you know, think what he needed to do to look after his self-care as well. Yeah, there are there are limits to this kind of forbearance and, and to the endurance that we have in these situations. And I think, you know, all of us, no matter what that looks like, have had a lot more put on us than we would have mm. ever expected um, of late. And, and it, yeah. it, is, it is difficult and certainly for families, um, you know, living in close quarters to one another, couples living in close quarters, people sharing accommodation in close quarters. You know, we're not meant to live like that all the time. Lockdowns are a very artificial mm. situation in terms of what they do um through relationships and your you know inability to get that perspective by going and talking to other people which is something that you normally would mm. do um yeah so thank you both um for for sharing that i think it's it's great that you feel able to talk about that and when when we can talk about those experiences, then other people feel more comfortable um, to talk about their own experience and, you know, make this all feel like it's something that everybody is going through, that it's not isolated. Well, we just need to, no, we need to normalise it, don't we? Yeah. 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 I mean, there's been, there's been studies, Robin, that demonstrate that healthcare workers are some of the most resilient people in the world. So this isn't about, the message is not be more resilient. Mm. You know, it's not about that at all. Mm. This is a really un, unusual and unique situation that we find ourselves in. So, you know, it's about self-care. It's not about beating yourself up to, to get stronger or tougher or be more resilient. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, do you think there's a barrier to practicing self-care you know you've both worked in the health sector for many years you've got your own experiences of this but you know why do you think the conversation about self-care seems to be front and center right now lynn what are your thoughts about this um yes well my thoughts at the moment i guess coming from again our roles as carers has been our biggest barrier and also um well, it's a lot of people, and I'm speaking from uh, what I even of you with people that have worked for me and, and that I've worked with, have been all from trauma and challenging backgrounds as well. It's the reason we come into this work. And so we're determined to fix it. We don't want other people to go through what we have gone through. So we do push each other more. I think, uh, you know, a big barrier is that not taking leave. One of the things that we would practice often people would take leave and I would ask people to pre-book their leave so that they had to take it. For me, it would be flying somewhere back New Zealand or New Zealand here. That hasn't been able to happen. So 
even our self-care that we always that we started getting good at ended up not being able to happen i um i go to a dog group every sunday with my i surround myself with people animals in the outside people like-minded and that couldn't happen because it was outside of the 5k so I think that come to a front again because people actually started not being able to practice their self-care. You can think about going away and having time away, but like you said, if you were restricting yourself to not being able to go shopping or or couldn't escape people in the house that sometimes you wouldn't be spending all that time with, <laughs> then that, that, that made it more difficult. So we, I think a lot of us, uh, to be honest, in, in this sector and everywhere, almost undid what we had done in the way of practicing self-care the, the environment and this is where I'll get back to both, both social did start to impact our mental health again and then our mental impact health started impacting what happened as you could go into a supermarket and see how people were seriously behaving that I, I strongly believe would not have under other conditions but people started not being able to where they'd normally go to the gym or have a walk around the block away from their family because their kids were home. They can't leave their kids, you know, so they're trying to work as well as, you know, it was just, every, to be honest, I believe everyone has responded completely normally to a completely abnormal situation. And we'll get there back, but I think, again, that um, talking self-care, that really practicing it, not... Um, it, it needs to be more than a word. It needs to be a um, a, a must. And uh, and like um, Donna said, it's, it's not a treat. It's you have to do that. It's the same as you have to drink water. You have to have food. You have to look after yourself. So yeah. I um, that's become more and more you know, definitely has been more exposed in these times. So you know, I hope I. I hope that we keep practicing that even when we go back that everyone doesn't rush to sit in traffic for two hours, that they don't stay at the office for longer. We we need to stop rewarding people for overworking, to be honest with you. That has to stop. We we have to start, you know, giving people prizes for leaving on time. Yeah. And you know, but- being aware that that is not a virtue. Some of the things that perhaps we used to see as virtues, we have to start thinking of as as something else because they're actually probably things that are not serving us in the long term and that are that are you know making life difficult. Donna, um, what about you? What support do you think that people need to be able to incorporate self care into their lives in a way that supports their mental health and flows on to people around them, like their children, partners, friends workplaces yeah look I think um I mean I think it's we've just got to normalize it so part of normalizing is talking about it so I mean kudos to Emma 365 for having a dedicated podcast and I know that Emma did a lot around are you okay day like we've actually just got to have conversations um you know to let people know that it's okay to talk about this stuff and it's okay to look after yourself so I know for me, um, especially in my, you know, chief allied health officer role, it was a, you know, fairly high profile leadership position. So I used to take any opportunity I could, whether that was within the organisation or even externally, to talk about my own self care. And so many times people would say to me, "Thank you for sharing that. Like I've been feeling exactly like that." And it's incredible to see people like you, who are prioritising self care. It sort of gives people, other people, permission 
to then do it or to realise that it's okay and you don't, like you said, you don't have to pretend or keep up this kind of appearance that busy is good. It's not serving anybody because if I'm not okay, I can't be a good mother, I can't be a good partner and I'm going to be rubbish when I turn up into the workplace. I'm not my best self. So, you know, I think there's um, a responsibility on, you know, leaders to, to walk the talk and Lynn, you talked before about perhaps in the past not being so good at walking the talk. And I, the, the number of executives who've said to me, oh, I'm not very good at it, but you should do it. Well, I think, I think that's not good enough. Like, I actually don't think it's good enough anymore. I think if you believe in this and you want your staff, you know, you've got to role model the right behavior. You role model other professional behaviors, right? Why not role model self-care? So I think there's a, you know, leaders need to do something because that will then have an impact on their staff where they, you know, they look up and go, well, if she can do it or he can do it, well, maybe I can too. Mm. And even just normalising getting professional help. I mean, I still think, you know, you asked about barriers before, Robin. I still think there is a, I mean, gosh, we're in the mental health space, talk about barriers and stigmas. But even when it comes to um, self-care, even if you don't necessarily have a mental health issue, there are still barriers to getting professional help because there's this perception that you have to, there's something wrong with you and, or that, you know, things I've had, I've said to some people, have you thought about it? Oh, I'm not that bad yet. I think, well, why wait? Like, why don't we value our own help, happiness and well-being and, and put whatever it is we need around us to, um, to do that? So I think that sometimes we need permission, Robin. We need support. We need people role modelling. We need um, people who are in the healthcare profession or working directly with others to, to encourage that and to have conversations. And even with our families, we need to have those sorts of conversations and check in with people and some of that is, you know, a lot of the ethos around Are You OK Day, but it's kind of doing that every day, not just on a dedicated day. Mm. And one of the things perhaps that might be a positive, let's hope so, you know, coming out of this situation that we all find ourselves in is, you know, the perhaps there will be a different conversation publicly, perhaps there will be more community understanding um, that help seeking when things are not right is, is absolutely normal to be encouraged, you know, rather than being something that people feel stigmatised by or feel that they have to keep to themselves. Certainly we've spoken to other guests on this podcast podcast before about that stigma that they've felt in seeking help you know for their mental health so let's hope you know my wish for for everybody is that after the end of all of this that that all looks quite different um and you know <laughs> let, let's hope so um donna maybe if i can continue just on this um kind of conversation about the focus that you've had in in your career around the well-being of of health workers um, who we know have been absolutely pushed to the limit during the pandemic. Um, Specifically thinking about those people now, how can people who are in caring and frontline professions practice self-care and, you know, how can organisations support this? Yeah, thanks, Robin. I mean, it's there are silver linings to COVID and I think one of them is, as you say, is that, that awareness now and that, that conversation and the, the spotlight that it's shone. So I certainly hope that that, that absolutely continues. Um, I think, you know, the frontline staff, whatever sector you work in, people are exhausted. There is no doubt about that. They are absolutely shattered and they have, they have been pushed to their limits. So I think um, for many, you know, there's multiple levels in which people need to think about their self-care at the moment. So there's the individual level in terms of, you know, is there professional support that you can access? Is there 
services, 3D employee assistance programs or the equivalent in people's workplaces. There's speaking to their GP and, and getting professional help through those sorts of different pathways. There's having conversations at home with their family and thinking about, well, what, what do we need to do as a family unit or whatever that unit might look like for you in terms of your household, in terms of what support you need and how do, how do you plan for that? I, I think we can't sort of, can't just wish this happens. It's actually got to be purposeful and, and planned for in terms of self-care. So how do you schedule that in like you would schedule in any other meeting or any other appointment in your diary? And then I think in the workplace, um, I mean, organisations have always had some high-level supports available in terms of EAP and, and things like that, but I think it needs to be much more targeted and focused now. So it is it is really meaningful conversations that managers and leaders have in the workplace about what their workforce needs because what people need is different too. So what might work for me and my self-care will be very different for you. So it's also really important to say, well, what does matter to you and what do you need? And thinking about having multiple strategies um, that might support people's individual needs. For some people, it is simple things like having, you know, some tea and coffee and morning tea provided however often. Some For some people, it's food. For some people, it's physical spaces. And for some people, it's much deeper and much more meaningful than that. So it really, you know, you've got to sort of try and meet the various needs of people in terms of what their self-care looks like. But I think, like I said before, Robin, it's got to come from the top. So it absolutely needs CEOs and executives and all the people leaders to be demonstrating, leading by example and having these conversations with their staff and has to be so much more than lip service. If anything feels like lip service, you're just going to disengage people straight away. So it does need to be really meaningful. And there are so many resources out there. Like I mentioned the Healthcare Worker Wellbeing Centre that was targeted more at healthcare workers, but you've got the Black Dog Institute, you've got Beyond Blue. There there are so many um, groups out there that have really had to pivot to provide a much broader range of services for a much broader um, audience. And, you know, they're doing a fantastic job. There's lots of apps out there. You know, you've got Smiling Mind doing some mindfulness stuff. I think Headspace have similar things. So there is so much out there that organisations can tap into, but also individuals can tap into as well. Mm. Yeah, thanks, Donna. I mean, there's lots of good stuff happening in the mental health space that people can, you know, get on get on board with. And some of that might be just, you know, asking people um, that they know what's been helpful to them, what resources they have, because otherwise it can be a bit of, it can be a bit of work, can't it, to you know sort of sort through all of that and try and figure out what what works for you. So, Lynn, you know interested in your experience here because you're a practice leader for psychosocial support services at Irma and you know you see people um, dealing with this every day and what their challenges are and what their needs are so people who are living with mental illness it you know it has been a really hard few years through the pandemic especially with lockdowns and inability you know to connect with other people in person and and the changes to routines and I was interested when you said earlier and I have heard this before that people who have those challenges actually at least initially um, probably reacted um, better to to the restrictions than other people did because this was life you know for them so you know they had empathy for what everybody else was going through because that was their lived experience too um what has self-care looked like through the pandemic for your team and for your clients and the people that you support? Um, yes, like with, um, yeah, it was very um, inspiring seeing our, our consumers 
you know, dealing with the challenge of the pandemic, it seemed, you know, to be on a better than us. Well, I will say they were looking in on us, but I think that again was a part of self-care to be honest and that people actually weren't, but it made people feel, it generally, I've found people feel better when they think they're helping someone else, whether you have mental illness, whether you're this person supporting someone with mental illness, people generally like to help. And when there is a crisis, as the pandemic had, people are strong and we base, you know, all our practice on a strength-based approach with, we focus on, we have a bit of a what's going on and then we focus on well, what can we do, not what can't we, because worrying about something you can do nothing about is wasted energy. And I think when things really um, hit the fan, as they say, it's what comes out with people. But it, it has been tiring with the people that have, I will say for the people that we support our, our consumers, not only there was the pandemic transition for people, but they um, people that are in our program also transitioned from other programs where they got a different type of support that ended with certain funding once the NDIS came in and then people through PSS weren't eligible for NDIS and which that is a changing world as we know as well and I won't take much time talking about NDIS but I'm just saying the world is a changing place and the pandemic was absolutely nothing I ever thought I'd see in my lifetime and I still think in a year or so if, you know I'm going to think I made it all up and I think that's where everyone's going to feel we've, we've been in the twilight zone but what uh, happened is everyone has we've gone well what can we do with the connections with the self-care we run um we thought well we can't run groups face to face so we're running them online and people that had never and staff who had never run groups or been involved with group work before uh have found that a great experience as well like it's just a different type of support and how people have um come to the party that never might not have really picked up a PC or, or used their phone in that way before are now running our groups as well as we know and Irma and that shows me that it's working, that people like this value in what we're doing and when people feel that there is, that increases their own mental health because they know they're assisting someone else. So that's been an interesting, um, I guess, viewpoint from us is that you know people have realised their own potential in this space because there hasn't been the opportunity of people, I guess, um, rescuing, I'll say that, going out to the places and people not having the opportunity of going out because they thought they couldn't. And now there was no choice. They've actually you know, also well, what realised that their own capacity is there, which is what we're about, of course, and realising their own potential. So that's been self-care in itself. Um, I guess a lot of what we're doing with the team is to be honest, we're giving each other permission to feel like crap. <laughs> if you, you know, like, I mean, yeah, you do. It's, it's, you know, everyone, we're all about being positive. And I will say when it first happened that we were all working from home and we got in the world of Teams and Zoom, and it was actually kind of exciting. I don't think anyone talked in words for a while. We found gifts and memes, and it was fantastic, and that was exciting. It's tiring but exciting. The last year, I think everyone continues and um, to the mental health and mental health impact on staff and people in this space has been the last year where you kept thinking it would be over and then it wasn't. And I think when at first it was, and I think that's where we've gone right, this is where self-care really needs to 
step up a notch. So we have a lot of, um, you know, instead of all the rah-rah, this is great, let's do it. Well, we do that, but we also <laughs> have the bits of, all right, you know, again, not feeling it today. What are we going to do? What's everyone think? And then what else are we going to do in our catch-ups? We have EAP, we have reflective practices, we have, you know, all those wonderful things. But what we find is sometimes it's just, you know, don't even have it about, especially don't have it about work. And we've started doing that overall. But, um, you know, we um, we did an, an online virtual tour of the Winchester house. Like, that's amazing house over in the States. And that's what we did for 40 minutes. And we bought it and we just had the team together and we did that. And it was so rejuvenating just not to, just not to think that it was just something completely different. And it almost felt, I guess, normal. We were on an outing, mm. you know. But, you know, and I think, um, I think it's really about focusing on our hobbies and 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 not actually focusing on the industry. Reminding us to um, keep contact with friends and people outside of the industry as well, because it's easy for us, and especially where I come from in Resi, where you work in shift work, that you ended up being friends with everyone there because. All the people in the normal nine to five were doing their thing, and but it, but it also keeps you in certain spaces that you know I think you need to be reminded there are different worlds out there. So hence my pug group and so forth. You meet people and remind that there is a different industry out there, and it's not all about mental health and having to fix what's going on out there. Sometimes it's just in permission that let's not think about this. Let's watch Wallace and Gromit for twenty minutes or. <laughs> Something like that. I don't know. I'm a great TV watcher, but um, I've found that I've started just even doing that and giving myself permission. And that's what we do with staff. Get up and stretch. We've got mm. staff that puts them out. Get out and get a cup of coffee. And I don't want to see you on beans for five minutes. And, you know, we're just bossing everyone around, making us look after ourselves. So, you know, making it normal, like, you know, it's okay to stop for five minutes. I think we can just hear, which we did at the beginning before we started recording, but I've only just started to hear again Lynn's pug snoring in the background there. And um, if you weren't sure, if she, she was not saying her pub group, she was saying her pug group, um, being a being a lover of dogs. And yeah, look, it, it, it is so important to have something else in your life that you can turn your attention to when things don't look good. And I was thinking as you were talking about that, Lynn, that we tend to think of the term respite in a kind of professional capacity as in it's a program or it's a place or it's something but respite's also sort of little moments in the day that you can find for yourself when the going gets tough and you know just things that make you happy (laughs) that can take you away from your reality if your reality is not so good even for a little while so really interested in what good self-care looks like for for both of you in the interest of thinking I guess about how we can role model this to our family and our friends and the people that we work with um Lynn what does good self-care look like for you so it's your pug group it's taking a bit of time out you know watching some crap tv even if you're not normally a tv lover what else have you found has worked for you as self-care uh with self-care I've found um making sure I actually schedule a walk every day outside I, I had my treadmill and so forth but I actually found that was still keeping me inside so I actually go out and I find one thing that I can laugh about every every time I'm out there whatever that is like you know an observation around and to be honest where I live 
that is not a hard find around here. We some that's very interesting uh, neighbourhood here, uh, and yeah, and the self care is also me. The morning I've uh, reconnected with a, my a kinesiologist that I um, that I uh, some worked with quite some years ago, and he is a great mentor, and uh, he is a reminder of uh, me taking, as he says, the ten percent rule. So no matter even if I go to do the dishes, I have to take ten percent off my. It's not bolting; it's it's slowing myself down, and. And I put I choose in front of everything. So say before I jumped on here, I told myself that I chose to be part of this podcast. And it's a, it's a it's a little bit of a mantra that I'm I'm trying to share with people. In that it sounds funny. And a few years ago, as a resi worker, all hard and wise and yes, but they're thinking, no, we don't need that. Yes, we do. And it has really it, it that little hesitation before doing things has actually helped the slowing down so that is a real good self-care and the fact that I'm listening to people now who are giving that advice which I would be giving to other people when I do now so um, yeah that's really for mine as well and just working on those strategies and reminding people that everything we say yes to at work if it's outside of your hours remind that Everything you say yes to is saying no to your own self-care and you're saying no to your own family if you're saying yes to work that is not within the scope of your work or in your hours and reminding yourself of that. So you're making that choice and it's all about choice. I'm really interested, Lynn, in hearing you talking about, you know, that phrase and saying I choose this before you actually do something. Has that helped you to get more clarity over where you've said I choose to do this, where your gut is saying actually no, <laughs> I don't want to do this, and, and and helping you to perhaps say no to some of those things that aren't serving you. Absolutely, and I choose uh, is also I choose not as well. It is about um, the permission and the time, and, and what it is about is is um, it's giving yourself control about what you're doing as well. Like I think a lot of no, I know that a lot of self-care is forced aside because we don't feel we're in control of it and we're scrambling and I bringing it back and I choose or I choose not is saying no matter what I do, I chose that, I, I did it. And it's not about blame, justification, it's giving yourself permission and control and a breath. You know, we've talked about people with um, addictions and so forth that had the rubber band on their on their wrist before they took or cigarettes because it gives you a something else to think about because we do things so automatically in this busy world that we live in that we need to choose to do things rather than it being automatically. It also physically brings you down. You're not running up. You have a breath and, you know, we talk about breathing. Um, We don't do it very well. It sounds odd, but we don't. And we hold our breath very quickly. We we just... um, we need to bring it back to what we're doing within our control because at the end of the day, that's all we've got. Yeah. So we can be using them right away and I would um, strongly encourage you to start now. I choose, use, I choose. <laughs> Absolutely. So Donna, what does good self-care look like for, for you um, in your life? 
Yeah, thanks, Robin. And I love those things you've said, Lynn, too. And I, I think, um, I mean, there's a number of things that Lynn said that really resonate, too. And one is being able to say no and, you know, having the courage to say no. It is much easier to say yes than it is to say no. So I think purposefully choosing to do things, um, whether that's to not do it or to do it, I think is really important. And breathing. I mean, that's one of the things that I'll often do is just a way of grounding me, taking, you know, if you've, if, if you've got a really busy day, you'll find everyone has space for 10 deep breaths just to just to pause and to de-escalate that sort of activity uh, in your head. But Robin, at the beginning, I spoke about self-care, couple care, family care. That's my kind of mantra. And so that's, you know, that's what I prioritise on um, or prioritise with my family. So self-care for me, you know, a couple of mornings a week, I get up earlier than the kids when the house is quiet and I do yoga because um, that's, you know, that uh, fuels me from a mindfulness perspective as well as a physical activity perspective. Um, you know, I'd, my partner will get up and do his thing in the morning as well, but he'll generally get the kids ready. So once I've got uh, done my yoga, I know I can have a shower in peace. And then by the time I come out of the bedroom, there's a cup of tea waiting for me and I'm I'm calm. And so if the kids, you know, are not calm, then at least I'm ready to bring my best self and, and not let things escalate any further um, so that's kind of our little morning routine. So we both, you know, fill our buckets before the kids get up. Um, in the evening, you know, we'll make sure once the kids are in bed that we sit down and have some time together as a couple. And one of the things that we do, we don't do this every day, but often we'll just sit on the couch together, no TV, and just have a five-minute conversation. We simply ask each other, how is your heart in this breath? So it's just a really lovely question that actually talks to how you're feeling, not what did you do today and tell me about your tasks and activities, but actually how are you feeling? And we'll just get five minutes each to talk and the other person just listens. And then, you know, usually at the end, we thank you so much for sharing and I'm glad you felt this way or I'm sorry when I did that, you felt this way. But, you know, and then the other person has a chance to talk. So it's an opportunity to connect with each other. But I think when you're doing that self-reflection and that talking, you often surprise yourself with what comes out when you really stop to think about how you are. So that's another sort of that's self-care and couple care, really. But it's a great strategy just to tap into how you're feeling. Now that things are a bit more open, I try and get to one or two yoga classes in the studio each week because I get to leave the house and, and do something for myself. But like Lynn, I try and get outside every day, whether that's walking the dog or getting in the garden, but just being amongst the gum leaves and nature, I think is so, so energizing. Um, and then the family care and couple care, and there's a number of things that we do in that space to kind of look after ourselves as well. So, um, you know, it'll look different for everybody, but that's, that's what I do, Robin. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I think there's so much doing, isn't there, that trying to slow down and have that focus on feeling and how do you get to how you are feeling in a, in the moment as opposed to what you are doing it's important for all of us to be thinking about how we are doing that because a lot of us are not feeling um as we do and we're just doing because we're doing doing a lot and and you know slowing that down and asking that question intentionally is a really great strategy so thank you and uh, these conversations always fly by and this one really has has flown so thank you both as we're coming to the end of this kind of chat today um do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to to share lynn how about you um yes it, it has flown by it's amazing um, but i think for me um just remind everyone and each other that sometimes stopping to do less is doing more as well that 
you know, do quality over quantity of things. That you know, it's about what you know. Just put some more time into our day for our own thoughts and our own self-reflection and, and what we actually want and what makes us happy. And um, you know, that's where that's that's what we've got to focus on. Like, what makes us happy? Because if we're happy, people around us are going to be happy. The fact that we're doing this podcast now and talking about it though is a great step in the right direction. So um, for all of us, and yeah, I think uh, long may it continue. And I think we just need to keep reminding each other, even though our environment will change and it will change, but that this can never, you know, go be put by the wayside again. So Self care. You know, we've got to talk and breathe it, and I'm going to role model it for proper and for real. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Lynn. How about you, Donna? Any final thoughts? I, yeah. Look, I think the main the main final thought, really, apart from the little the little mantra I've been repeating of self care, couple care, family care, is not to see self care as a activity that's in competition with all the other busyness. So. I think that, you, like you said, Robin, we are always busy and it's almost like wearing a bit. How are you? Yeah, really busy. Everybody has a full to-do list all of the time and it will never, ever be empty. So I think it's really important not to see self-care as another thing that's on that list. It's not competing with or, um, you know, it should just be seen as something you need to do in order to be able to tackle the other things that you have to do in your to-do list or to do those things to a you know, a better extent, if you like. So that would be my take home. Don't see it as another thing to do to the list and don't see it as something that's in competition with all your other activities, but something that will support you to be your best self and show up the way you want to show up. Awesome answer, both of you, and really great thoughts, I think, to leave our listeners with. So thank you both so much for joining us today. Thanks, You're very welcome, Robin. Thanks um, to Emma for focusing on this topic. Thank you both. And for our listeners, if you've been affected by anything discussed in this episode, um, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14. We'll also have some other mental health support resources listed on our show notes for this episode. I'm Robin Hayden and you've been listening to Get Real, Talking Mental Health and Disability. Since our last episode was recorded, we're very proud to say that Get Real was announced as a finalist in the Australian Podcast Awards in the Bullseye category for podcasts that are producing exceptional listening experiences for niche audiences and those underrepresented in the media. So if it's your first time listening to the podcast, make sure you check out our back catalogue of episodes. We have 47 of them now for you to make your way through. We'll also be releasing a summer series over January, looking back at some of our favourite lived experience episodes in anticipation of the changes that are coming over the next few years. And so these changes, what they're going to do is they're really going to reshape and reform the mental health sector to reflect the lived experience of carers and consumers. So the episodes that we have picked out for the summer series, they feature people with lived experience sharing their own stories of navigating the service sector and their hopes for how this experience might change for the better in future. So join us next time on Get Real and this time it will be for the summer series where we will have more conversations about mental health and disability. And if you're enjoying the podcast, we would love you to share Get Real with your friends and networks and subscribe to the show. That way you won't miss an episode. 
You can also rate and review Get Real on your preferred podcast listening platform wherever you are. So until next time, stay safe, stay well and look after yourself. We'll see you soon.